beginning in verse 12. So this morning, as we continue our march through chapter 12, we're looking at a text that deals with how to live the Christian life. That's where we're at in chapter 12. We've had all of this doctrine in the first 10 chapters, and then we had chapter 11, the great hall of faith. So we had all of these great cloud of witnesses. We looked at their lives and how they remained true to God and and endured all the way to glory, even though they never received the promise. They never saw the promise of the Messiah. Well, what the author now wants to do is kind of switch from just the parts where you're walking individually and remind you that the Christian life is not a solitary life. That the Christian life has always been lived in community. And it may feel like we're living out our life in isolation sometimes, but the reality is the Christian walk is not a solitary walk. In fact, I would suggest to you today that it's impossible for you to endure your Christian walk without some help along the way from other believers. I would suggest to you that it's impossible for you to endure in your Christian walk without some help along the way with other believers. And we all at times need Christian brothers and sisters to encourage us when we're struggling in our faith. However, the vast majority of us tend to withdraw and we tend to isolate ourselves when we're struggling. Americans are strongly individualistic and we wear that badge proudly. We admire the people who do not need a lot of help or who can forge forward with little or no assistance. But our fiercely independent spirit, my friends, means that we are often weak in the area of cooperation. We don't see our need for each other, and as a result, we miss all of the benefits that are gained in a community Striving together for a mutual benefit. We miss that part because we're so focused on ourselves, And that's especially true in the church. In our passage here this morning, we're going to look at that matter. What are the responsibilities that we have, not just individually, but corporately within the body of Christ as we live out this Christian life? And to that end, we're going to look at three very specific exhortations in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 12. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the immense privilege I have to open up your wonderful truth. Thank you, Lord, for all of these dear saints who made their way here today to open up your truth Lord, I pray that your word would pierce us, pierce us, Lord, to our very heart. And that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, Lord, we'd be doers of the word. We wouldn't just hear today and say, well, the person next to me really needs to hear this. But rather, Lord, we would first say, Father, what would you have me do with this? How can I apply this in my life in a way that brings you honor and glory? Lord, help us to be that kind of believer. Open our hearts, open our minds to your wonderful and glorious truth. We 
we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you're in, you're in chapter 12 of Hebrews. Let's just remind ourselves where we got to or how, what we've learned is we've got to the first 11 verses so quickly. Again, this is review. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it's in these first three verses that the author has taught us that in order to endure in our life of living out this Christian life, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus and we need to prepare for the race. And he uses a very specific word here for race, agonia, which is where we get the English word agonizing. So it's not a sprint where you just kind of run your Christian life for a little while and then, whoo, okay, I get to set back and kind of take it easy now. No, the author of Hebrews is describing this as something long, agonizing. There'll be steep hills. There'll be dark valleys. There'll be inclement weather. And you should prepare yourself for that kind of race, not for a sprint. Secondly, we should remember that those who have went before us and made it to the finish line, who is he speaking about? He's speaking about all of those dear saints in Hebrews chapter 11 that we looked at so intently. Lastly, we should embrace the course that God has chosen for us, trusting in him that every obstacle was by his sovereign hand. And whether he placed it there or allowed it there, it's there for a purpose. It's there for a reason in your life. Along the way, verse 4, you should not forget the Lord's suffering against sin. In case we start to get tired and start to feel like this is too much, we should be reminded of how the Lord struggled. Not with his own sin, but carrying our sin. And how he endured all the way to the end. The author of Hebrews was calling us to accept the fact that it's going to be a challenging life. That we will face persecution. That others won't understand. Then in verse 5, the first part here, he reminds us not to make light of the Lord's discipline. Sometimes those trials, sometimes that suffering, those things happen in your life, are by the Lord's hand. And the author reminds us, don't take that so lightly. God uses these temptations and trials in our lives to strengthen us in our commitment to the Lord. He's molding us. He's shaping us. He's chiseling off the rough spots, conforming us more and more into the image of his son. And then the last part of verse 5, part C, you should not lose heart when the Lord disciplines you. You should not check out and sink into full despair every time the Lord's disciplining hand is upon you. Because that word discipline, remember, means correction and instruction. And the Lord is actually doing it for our benefit. Then in verses 6 through 8, we saw the legitimacy of God's discipline. He's telling you that although you are discouraged in your experience of being corrected by God, that it's not meant to discourage you. In fact, it proves you are his children. It proves you are his legitimate children. If there was no correction, then we would not be his children. But if you are his child, then discipline or correction is evidence of his love, not of his neglect or opposition against you. I think I shared with you the story of one of my children, right? Running out into the street after I told them not to do that, right? First warned them, went out again. 
you know, again, it wasn't like I was sitting on my porch waiting for them to mess up so that I could correct them. But instead, because I'm older and wiser, I knew the dangers that were there. And so I ran out there and disciplined them in a way that they would not forget. Why? Not because I was looking to discipline them, but because I love them so much. I knew what dangers would happen if you're running out into the street without looking. Verses 9 and 10, then we get the example of God's discipline. So in order to reinforce the point, the writer of Hebrews then goes on, and he uses that same human analogy, analogy, the analogy of earthly fathers, and his point is pretty simple. If we respect our earthly fathers who disciplined us, and they did the best they could, humanly speaking, why then do, why not respect God who disciplines us for our good and whose best is the best? Not just an attempt at being the best. His correction and instruction and love is perfect and pure and absolutely best. Not just what seems best. And then finally, in verse 11, we saw the fruit of God's discipline. As God's children, we need to understand that this correction is designed to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, if you've been in Sunday school here the last few weeks, I promise you that uh, Eric and I did not coordinate our sermons together, but there is a lot of lap over here uh, between these two things. So you're kind of getting another dose of that again this morning. We were laughing about it this morning. He said, what are you preaching on? And I said, what you just talked about. And so uh, it seems like God is uh, hammering home this point. True holiness or righteousness is not just external. It's not just something we wear. It's not just something that we do. It's not some act, not some, not some physical thing that we show everybody out how righteous we are. True righteousness, I'm not talking about your positional righteousness that you have with God the moment of salvation. I'm talking about your practical righteousness, which is how you're living out your faith. That part, my friends, begins at the heart level. It's at the thought level. And a truly righteous person has godly motives and seeks to glorify God in everything that they do. Do they do it perfectly? Absolutely not. Do they strive to please God? Absolutely. In everything they do. We need to trust that God is indeed molding and shaping us for good and glory. Well, that brings us then to our text here this morning, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Let's look at that first. The first two verses, let's look, read that together. Therefore, and whenever we see the word therefore, that tells us what? We should ask ourselves, what's the therefore, therefore? And that always leads us back to what he just talked about, which is what I just covered for you in those first 11 verses. So all of this then is a continuation of that thought. He called us individually in verses 1 through 11 to endurance. And the author of Hebrews is now telling us something else. Point number one in your notes. To finish the race, we must help one another. Now that seems very simplistic, doesn't it? We must help one another. So notice he says there, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Notice it does not say, strengthen your hands. It says, strengthen 
the hands. And that implies that you're not only to lift your own hands up, but you are to go around finding other drooping, feeble-kneed believers and help strengthen them. That's part of the body life, isn't it? Hebrews 10.25, remember that? Do not forsake the assembly together of ourselves together. Right? Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why not? Verse 24. Instead, let us consider one another to provoke each other unto love and good works. Part of what you're doing when you gather here every week, beloved, is you are strengthening each other. God has given every believer in here a spiritual gift. Some of you have more than one, but each of you have at least one. And then God brings us together into a body of Christ and knits us together so that your gift will be meant to encourage and edify and provoke love and good works in each other. Your spiritual gift is not for you. It's for everybody else in the body of Christ. Their gifts are for you, not your gift for you. And we lose sight of that and how important that is. In other words, notice that we're not only to strengthen ourselves to endure, that's kind of a given, that's what he's been talking about in the first 11 verses, but now he says we're to be looking around at our brothers and sisters and asking the question, how can I help you endure? What is it that you need? How are you struggling? How can I come alongside you and help you carry your burdens? How can I strengthen them as they face the fight of faith? Now, this language is actually taken from Isaiah 35, verse 3. We don't have time to do a full exposition of that. But let me just give you a recap. At a time when Israel needed some real encouragement, Isaiah encourages them that God's promises are true and then tells them they needed to strengthen one another as their victory was already assured by the Lord himself. So Isaiah was saying, listen, I know you're downtrodden. I know it looks bleak. I know it doesn't look, but I want you to remember that the victory is already assured. And you need to strengthen one another. That this race isn't just about you. We're not competing against each other, beloved. We are all in this race together. Some of us are further along down this marathon. Others are just beginning. But we're all in the same race together. And the only way that we will endure to the end is by helping each other. It's not, hey, I get there first. Hey, I'm way ahead of you. It's, I'm looking around and saying, how can I help my brothers and sisters? How can I come along? This one over here is struggling. This one over here is having a tough time right now. How can I come to them and help them in the race? Look at the second half of the exhortation in verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet. And you'll find that language from Proverbs 4.26. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. That word translated, make straight paths for your feet, trichoia, comes from the word meaning wheel tracks. Wheel tracks is what it's come from. And the idea is that we're leaving tracks for others to follow in. And the point here is, is that you're not only running this race yourself, but as you're running, 
beloved, you are leaving wheel tracks behind you so others can see what's the path we're supposed to be taking on our way to the finish line. Once again, the author of Hebrews reminding us, it's not just about you. I know our society keeps telling us how wonderful we are and how important it is that we seek our happiness and our path. But the Bible says, it's not just about you. Get over yourself. It's about the whole body of Christ. It's not just about you. Make sure that the life, your life stays on the course so that someone else doesn't follow you off course and be encumbered from the race set before them. Beloved, we again aren't running this race alone or competing against each other. We're all on the same team and we need to encourage one another by our words and our example to finish the race. And so endurance, beloved, isn't just for your sake. It's for whoever is looking at you also. It's also so that you can provoke each other to love and good works, that you're to run a straight path. It affects other people. People in a marathon race eventually get absolutely worn out. And that being worn out leads them to despair, sometimes to real discouragement. And God's word here to us in verses 12 and 13 is that we congregation is to be looking out for each other in the congregation. We're actually supposed to be pursuing it. We're to be actively seeking out those who we need to stop in our race and come alongside and help them. We're all in the same race. We're all on the same journey. It's not an individual journey. It's a journey we're taking together. So we're to be on the lookout for one another. And we're to be on the lookout for people in our midst who are struggling. And we're to be ready to be encouraged, to be an encouragement to one another. And when you see another believer hit the wall and trust God anyway and keep fighting through the despair and the discouragement, it encourages you to never give up. And you see how they're facing that adversity and you start asking yourself, would I be able to do that if I was facing that situation? And that's why it's so important, beloved, that we keep assembling together even in the midst of our struggle. Because you may not realize it or not, but when others know that you're battling this debilitating disease and it takes all of your strength to be here, but yet you show up, you have an effect on the rest of us. God uses that in our hearts and makes us feel like, wow, if they can be here, I can be here. Look at that faith. One of the great ways we encourage one another is to keep on believing, keep on trusting, keep on going when we hit those hard places in the Christian life. We've got brothers and sisters who are watching and they need to see us trusting. And so often they are strengthened because they see us continuing to believe the gospel, continuing to believe the scriptures, continuing to trust God's promises, continuing to depend on God's strength and fight Fight, fight through all of those hard places. That's the first thing we learn in this passage. Be on the lookout for those who need encouragement in the church. If we're going to endure, you're going to need to help one another. And secondly, don't forsake the assembly. Let others see the path you're blazing for them to follow as they watch how you continue to trust God, even in the midst of your struggle. Point number one. To finish the race, we must help one another. Look at verse 14 then. 
the first part. Pursue peace with all men. Point number two, to finish the race, we must pursue peace with one another. How does the writer of Hebrews want them to go about lifting weak hands and strengthening feeble knees and making straight paths for their feet? Well, verse 14 tells us there are two things we need to do. And incidentally, what we're called to do, these two things I were called to do at the same time, are very difficult to do. The first thing we're to do is to pursue peace with all men. Who are all men? It includes all those within the church, but all those outside the church, even if they're persecuting you. Let's look at what makes this so difficult. Now, there's an inherent problem, at least, that we have with this whole idea or practice of being at peace with all men. And one of the biggest problems that we have is the tendency to compromise our faith and doctrine for the sake of peace. Some of us want peace with all men, but we want peace with all men so much that we're ready to compromise our faith to get it. That's not what Paul meant in Romans 12, 18. That's why he wrote, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Some are ready to have acceptance of the world in such a way that we compromise our profession and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what we are called to do for peace. Donald Guthrie writes this, Peace with all men is only possible within the limits of what is right. There are, in fact, times when standing for just causes brings intense antagonism, and peace is inevitably shattered. But the meaning must be that every effort must be made to maintain peace if at all possible. Translation, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love all people with the love of Christ. But if you ask me to do something that will make me compromise my faith, I will still love you, but I will not comply. We need to make sure that we make that distinction, beloved, when we're thinking about these things. What we're called to do is to live our lives peaceably in a way that others may see the love of Christ shining in us and through us. But we are never called to do so at the expense of our faith. Now, the second way that being at peace with all men is with those inside the body of Christ. Perhaps the most difficult place to apply these words is towards fellow Christians who have wronged you. And what It happens outside the church with unbelievers. We expect that. We expect that that would happen. But when it happens inside the church, the tendency is to drop out for a while. But rather than dropping out, the author of Hebrews says, no, you must pursue peace with all men. That word pursue is a very vivid word. It actually means to hunt down. Like a hunter would hunt prey. That's how the the diligence, the effort that we're supposed to put here, the idea is that we would pursue peace with that same kind of diligence and commitment with each other. It means that we're to be intentional about seeking to rectify the situation and understand this, that doesn't happen on its own. But we are called to pursue that kind of peace with each other. We need to chase after it. And when someone hurts you, Your tendency is to withdraw and heal your wounds, and you put up a wall of protection around yourself. 
especially with the person or people that have hurt you, so that that never happens again. Strange thing about walls, though, is that the higher you put the walls, pretty soon when you're done and you're finished and you've built all these high walls around you, you realize you're the only one inside. And no one can get in. And so you think you're protecting yourself, but what you're really doing is isolating yourself from the very people God has put in your path to be a provision for you to help you in the healing process. You put up and you distance yourself. You avoid talking to them. The author says, don't do that. Pursue peace with that person. Now, I might add that sometimes it's better to allow some time, a little bit of time, to allow wounds to heal. Time for prayer. Time to seek godly counsel. Time to seek godly wisdom and discernment from all of the provisions God has provided for you. But isolating yourself and never making peace with them is not what God had in mind. Beloved, do you practice this command? Rather than withdrawing and nursing your hurting feelings, do you pursue peace with those who have hurt you? Do you start with immediate family members, husbands and wives? Do you pursue peace with each other when your spouse has said or done something to hurt your feelings? Parents, children, do you pursue peace to clear up misunderstanding and angry words? Church, do you go to those who have wronged you and seek to clear up those wrongs? And when you do, are you going with the assumption that you're right and they're wrong? Or do you go with a humble spirit asking, did I cause this conflict? I don't want anything to be between us. Can we get this cleared up? It's not usually the most pleasant part of the race, is it? But it's the course God has set before us. Pursue peace with all men, all mankind, if you will. That's those inside and outside the church. Why does the, why does the author of Hebrews make such a big deal about this? Because he knows that the persevering, the persevering in the faith and remaining faithful to the end, especially in the midst of hardship, that sort of thing requires an entire community to pull it off. It takes an entire body of believers pulling together, looking after one another, repenting, confronting sin, being confronted about your sin, having the hard but good conversations over and over and over again. It takes all of this to do this thing we call living out your faith in the church and doing it in a way that honors God. And unfortunately, many of you here today know from your own experience what a fragmented, fractured community does not provide the support and encouragement that you need to finish the race. Some of you have had some horrible experiences in your past. But God says, your heart needs to be ready to pursue peace. Don't let that happen here. Pursue peace with one another. So the writer of Hebrews' first encouragement as to how his readers can lift their weak, lift their lift the weak hands and strengthen the feeble knees is by pursuing peace with everyone. Point number one: finish the race. We must help one another. Point number two: finish the race. We must pursue peace with one another. Let's look at the last part, fourteen b, and the sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. 
Some of you may have the word holiness in your translations instead of the word sanctification. But the idea here is the same. It's this moral purity, both inward and outward. It points to a heart that's growing in conformity with God's standard of purity and holiness. As Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount, that moral purity has to begin at the heart level. Adultery was in God's sight is not just a physical act. He tells us in Matthew 5, it actually begins as a lust in the heart. So in other words, pursuing sanctification, pursuing holiness, is not just some external thing that you show everybody how righteous you are. That it actually begins as an internal aspect of your heart. It all starts here. Now, whenever I say something like this, when it says, and the text says, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, immediately I have to clarify. First, this does not mean that we get to heaven by our righteous behavior. Amen? You can't earn your way to salvation. The Bible is abundantly clear. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. And secondly, this does not mean that anyone can be perfectly holy or perfectly practically sanctified in this life. You heard that in Sunday school this morning. Otherwise, we should take out 1 John 1, 9. Because that provision is already in here, that when you sin, or if we sin, or since we sin, we need to confess that to God who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's in there for a reason, beloved, because God knew we wouldn't do this perfectly. The Bible is very clear here as well that we must strive against our propensity to sin as long as we live. That's going to be an active part of what it means to be a believer. You won't do it perfectly. And incidentally, the church is not a museum of righteous relics. It's a hospital for broken people who are all on this journey together, striving to please God, but doing it imperfectly every single day. So what does our text mean? It means that those whose hearts have been regenerated by God's grace will pursue a course of holiness. They won't do it perfectly, but that's their heart's desire. They may sin often, but they don't remain in that sin. They hate it. They confess it. They turn from it. They fight against it with all the spiritual weapons that God provides. They build into their lives a safeguard to avoid sin. They renew their minds with Scripture, hiding God's Word in their hearts so that we might not sin against Him. It's a lifelong pursuit, but without it, we will not leave those tracks that others will follow. And that's what he means there when he says, without which no one will see the Lord. Beloved, do you realize that your walking testimony may be the only Bible, the only gospel that an unbelieving world ever sees? And so the author of Hebrews is saying, if you're not living that life, if you're not pursuing peace with everyone, all men, outside and inside the body of Christ, if you're not striving for holiness, how will they ever see Jesus? 
What path are you leading for others to follow if you're not pursuing that path? Says author of Hebrews says, you want to live the Christian life? You not only have to be prepared for discouragements, that's going to happen from time to time. But you want to deliberately live at peace with everyone and you want to be fighting sin and you want to pursue holiness and you want to grow in God's grace. And that ought to be the aspiration of the Christian life. Every true believer wants to be more and more like Jesus, not so that we can do enough that God will accept us because God accepts you because of what Christ has done, not because of what you have done. Not so that we can do enough that God will accept us, but because God has graciously accepted us and forgiven us and pardoned us and justified us and adopted us through the work of his son. And the consequences of that life are that we grow in grace. And as we grow in grace, we strengthen other believers. And we leave a path so that others can follow as they strive through the power of the Holy Spirit, to live a life that glorifies God all the way to the end. My friends, do you know how lively, vibrant churches with a strong sense of community become spiritually dead churches? you know how that happens? They forget how important it is to love one another. They get so caught up in their own lives and their own struggle that they forget how important community is to their walk with Christ. They justify their own lack of effort and involvement within the body of Christ, and then they blame everyone but themselves for the reason that they're not involved. They're more upset that people are not inviting them to things, but are oblivious to the fact that they never invite anyone else. They get upset when no one ministers to their family when they're hurting, but they never make an attempt to minister to others. Inevitably, this leads to factions and divisions and lots of discouraged people and seemingly very little love for one another. And in the midst of this conflict, no one is pursuing peace. And they split apart and isolate themselves into groups of others within the church who will support them withdrawing and never challenge them biblically about what's the right thing to do. And no one ever challenges them about what would Jesus do. And there's even less real concern for the things of the Lord and his word. Soon the church is in conflict because no one is recognizing their own heart issues, their own sinful motivations, their own false idols of the heart because they're too concerned about who's right instead of what's right. You know what's right? Pursuing holiness. That's what's right. Keeping your eyes on Jesus. That's what's right. Seeking peace, pursuing peace with all men. That's what's right. Again, I know we are positionally holy the moment you're saved. I'm talking about practical holiness or practical sanctification. That process, we're becoming more and more like Jesus every day through all of his gracious provisions. What are some of his gracious provisions? Let me give you a couple here. You have his holy word. Are you reading it? You have an advocate, Christ Jesus. Are you praying? 
You have an indwelling Holy Spirit. Are you obeying? You have the church. Are you not forsaking it? You have other believers who incidentally God has placed in your path for you. Are you loving them and inviting them to love you like Christ loves you? If you're not, why not? Beloved, the Lord wants you, every one of you, to be adopted into his family through salvation. He wants every one of you to endure all the way to the finish. He wants you to finish the race. But you will never be able to do that on your own. You need each other. This is just the practice run to what we call eternity. Because look around you and all those folks who have trusted Christ as their Savior, get used to them. You are going to see them forever. This is just the practice run, folks. Christ did not die for the church so that we could prioritize everything else above it. He created the church and died for the church. And when I mean the church, and I'm talking about this building, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about all of us who are in the family of God. He created the church, died for the church, so that we could all finish this marathon together because he knows that lamb away from the flock is easy pickings for the wolves. But when we're together and we're under the word and we're obedient to the Holy Spirit's leading and we're loving one another and praying for one another and encouraging one another and equipping one another, we're like the three cords that are not easily broken. Christ knew, even though we often forget, beloved, we need each other. You may not think you do, but you do. So, beloved, to finish this race, we need to help one another. To finish the race, we must pursue peace with one another. And to finish the race, we must pursue sanctification with one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, texts like this are challenging to us because we get so caught up in our world then we justify that it's the right thing to do. We have a million and one reasons why we don't need to follow these commandments. But unfortunately, none of them square up with your word. 